my little niece, Avery Grace, who is approaching two years old, has a really cute habit that she has developed. When she and my sister are staying with my mom, she'll oftentimes like to go about four houses away where one of our neighbors has a, uh, an American flag right in front of the house. So Avery Grace will say to either my mom or my sister or Aunt Lauren, see the flag, see the flag. And they know what that means. That means they're going to walk Avery Grace over to the house. It's about four houses away. They're going to stand in front of the flag because Avery Grace wants to say the Pledge of Allegiance. It's funny to imagine that our neighbors there, they have you know one of those little doorbell uh, with the camera things, the ring doorbells. And so like if somebody's in front of your house, you get like, the wind chime sound. And it's funny to imagine them looking at the video and then seeing like every day or every like, four days a week or whatever it is, family members of mine doing the Pledge of Allegiance right outside of their house. <laughs> I can remember as a child in school doing the Pledge of Allegiance albeit faintly, but I nonetheless remember it. And even now, when I think back to that, there's a a little sense of awe to think of a whole bunch of children in a room saying the words, One nation under God. Now, I know that anywhere the Pledge of Allegiance is uttered, whether it's by grammar school children or whether it's by adults, there is the likelihood that there will be those who say that part of the pledge under God with a misconception of who God is, one that does not line up with the revelation of who God is found in the Scriptures. But laying aside those idolatrous conceptions that are there, nonetheless, when that statement is uttered, there is a truth in this regard. There is only one God. And I think it is commendable to think that President Eisenhower urged Congress that that little portion of the Pledge of Allegiance be added. But whether or not leadership or citizenship acknowledges it, the fact of the matter is that all nations are under God. And that is one of the themes, if you will, if not um, one of the grand themes, one of the truths that we're reminded of in Psalm 2. Now, as we come into Psalm 2, you'll notice that there isn't a subscript for Psalm 2. You may have a heading in some of your Bibles, but there isn't a subscript. So we're not told who the author is in the psalm, unlike, say, pretty much every other psalm in Book 1 of the Psalms. But take Psalm 3, for instance, where we're told it's a psalm of David. But nonetheless, we know that David was the author of this psalm. We see that in Acts, 24, Acts chapter 4, verse 25. And in that same verse, I'm going to read to you in a moment, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, we not only see David's authorship affirmed, we see the agency of the Holy Spirit affirmed in David's authorship. The text there reads like this, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, some think that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 was originally connected, comprising one psalm. And there are reasons for that, and a lot of literary uh, things that are happening in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that shows that there is some connection. However, others, on the other hand, thinking that the textual evidence for Acts 13.33, where the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm, we're going to see that later on in the message, and identifies it as Psalm 2, The second psalm, literally the second psalm. Now, the manuscript evidence there can be debated, but I want to say this. When we come into Psalm 2, I want you to think of it this way. We're still in the entrance hall of the Psalter. 
as we come in the Psalm 2, there are themes, there's linguistic commonalities between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2, verse 12, ends with, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And we'll get to that when we get to that. There's linguistic parallels that you're going to see as we get into the Psalm. Interestingly as well, Psalm 1 ends by telling us that Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Well, Psalm 2 ends by telling the kings of the earth, and by extension, ultimately, all people, to to do homage to the Son, lest they perish in the way. So as we come to this psalm, and not to mention, it also does not have an identification of authorship, which sets it apart largely from the rest of the psalms in book one of the psalms. Think of still being in the entrance hall of the Psalter. Psalm 1 emphasizes, if you will, the individual and the course of destinies, the two opposing ways and destinies that are there for individuals, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. Psalm 2 gives us a glimpse to the climax of history. So we'll see that as we get into it. Psalm 1 has an individual overtone. Psalm 2 has a universal overtone to it. But before um, getting into the text itself, a couple more words of preface. I do want to say that I think it's helpful to have a little bit of a theological preface before getting into Psalm 2. When you go through the Psalms and you see, for instance, let's say David writing, there are times where David is writing and he's speaking about his present situation. But at the same time that he's speaking about his present situation... By the power of the Holy Spirit, he is writing well beyond his present situation with an ultimate referent to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of this. In Psalm 41, verse 9, for instance, David wrote, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel, that's language for he acted as a traitor, against me. So David is speaking of himself in that historical context, and yet at the same time, he's speaking beyond himself. We know that because we see the Lord Jesus Christ during the Last Supper tell his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. John chapter 13, verse 21. He told them that he was telling them this before it happened so that they might know that he was, I am. Or as the NIV renders ego, Amy, that he was, I am, who I am. So the betrayal did not take Jesus by surprise. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats his bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. So it not only applied to David's historical situation, it went beyond David's historical situation, finding, if you will, an ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these kind of things happen in the Scriptures. You take, for example, when the prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of his day with a focus towards Jerusalem, And he rebuked them, the Lord rebuked them through Isaiah, telling the people that they were those who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Isaiah 29, verse 13. So that was Isaiah speaking to his generation, and yet at the same time, in Matthew 15, verse 7, Jesus can take that text of Scripture and look at the the leaders from Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees, and say, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. 
So it has a near application, but then it has a further application. So we're going to see that dynamic, I think, likely playing itself out in this psalm. It may have had an immediate reference to David, and perhaps a time when David was reigning and vassal nations that were under his dominion were seeking to rise up against David. It's very possible that this psalm was used as a kind of enthronement psalm for David's descendants as they looked at the Davidic dynasty that was promised in a place like 2 Samuel chapter 7. But whatever reference this had to David's immediate historical context and however it was used by his posterity that would take the throne after him, we know clearly this psalm has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because no Davidic king ever reached the lengths of dominion that are described in this psalm. That's one thing. But we know it most ultimately because over and over again, the New Testament applies this psalm to the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say that what we see here in this psalm is an expression of at least part of the aspect of the ideal king. And that would only be realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have by way of structure in this psalm, we have essentially four scenes in this psalm. And we're going to look at it scene by scene and verse by verse. The four scenes basically break down like this. The first is we're going to see the nations rebelling against God, but then we're also going to see the rationale behind their rebellion. That's scene one, verses one through three. And then we're going to see God's reaction to the king's rebellion. That's in verses four through six. In verses seven through nine, we see the third scene. We see, or hear, if you will, the Lord's anointed speak. And then the final scene of this psalm is a warning that is given to the kings and to the rulers and by application to everyone who has not kissed the Son. So we begin looking at this scene by scene and verse by verse. We begin in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, where we read, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So David begins Psalm 2 with a spirit-inspired rhetorical question. Why? There's the interrogative pronoun there in the Hebrew. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? David appears to be marveling at the fact that the nations and the peoples would be both in a set and ongoing state of rebellion against Yahweh and against His anointed. The word translated uproar here is the Hebrew verb ragash, or ragash, depending on classical or modern pronunciation. It speaks here of being in a tumult, in a commotion. When this is quoted in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, the language there from the Septuagint has the idea of rage. So you can picture the nations being in this tumult, this rage. But it's not a kind of passing temper tantrum. It's like the ongoing stormy state that is found in the red area that we see in Jupiter. It's kind of ongoing storm. Interestingly and incidentally, that stormy state which has raged for centuries, some suppose that it might soon come to an end. And if that's the case, it's a fitting illustration for what will happen to the rage of kings and rulers against God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It may be raging for centuries, 
but it will eventually come to an end. The people not only rage, they devise, or you could say plot, as rendered in the New King James. Now, interestingly, you might remember this from last week. Remember what the blessed man of Psalm 1 did, right? We saw what he didn't do in verse 1, but in verse 2, we were told that he meditated on the instruction of Yahweh day and night. We saw that that was the Hebrew word Hagah. It means to mutter to oneself. You could be thinking in your own head, you could be muttering, and that could be a way of meditating that you're kind of speaking under your breath to yourself. It's the same word that's used here to speak of what the kings and the peoples were doing. Now again, that word could be used in a whole bunch of ways, but it can also speak of a devising that is inward in the heart, a plotting in the heart, Proverbs 24, verse 2. But it can also speak of utterances that are vocal and outward, Psalm 35, verse 28, and Psalm 37, verse 30. I think there's a mixture of both here, clearly with an emphasis on the latter. Whatever devising these kings and rulers were doing in their own hearts was a precursor or was either happening in the midst of corporate plotting. This is groupthink at its worst. These are the rulers of the earth, as it were, taking their counsel with one another and trying to figure out how to throw off the dominion of Yahweh and His anointed. And David is asking, why? Why do people do this? Now, I think we could think about that question ourselves and we could think about why people rage against God and we might ask the question in this way, why would people rage against such benevolence? You think about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and you think about how God in His benevolence formed Adam from the dust of the ground and then He put him in a beautiful garden and He gave him responsibility. He gave him... um, Authority. He gave him a wife and a, a helper. And it was against such benevolence that Adam sinned against God. But the idea here, however, is that the marveling is against the futility of such a considered feat. That's the idea here. So we can say, why would the nations rage against God? He's so benevolent, He's so great. But the context here is, why? Why are they doing this? The proposed attempt to overthrow Yahweh and His anointed is futile. It would be like a child showing up in the borders of communist China with a squirt gun thinking he's going to overthrow the CCP. Even if he had the super soaker soak zuka. If you know water guns, then you know that's a big deal. It can hold 1.6 liters of water. It's known as the portable plastic geyser. Now, if a child showed up with that, nobody's sitting on the edge of their seats wondering, I wonder how this is going to turn out. It's futile. It would be crazy. And that's the idea here. Why? Why would they even think to do this? Fallen man seems to think where two or more are gathered in agreement against Yahweh and His anointed, the odds of success go up. But whether it's one man shaking his fist against the God of the universe, or whether it's a hundred zillion if there could be, the probability is still zero percent. The kings of the earth were told, take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. So here's a little bit of the picture. You have the kings and the rulers 
I would, I would argue, deceived by their own pride and sense of power, perhaps self-worth as well. They gather in a common cause of rebellion. Per the language here, you get the idea that they dig in their heels. They take their stand, which connotes a kind of staunch, determined And notice, per the language of the text, it's a united rebellion, right? This is their stand in opposition to God. They counsel together. They take out the proverbial whiteboard and they brainstorm, trying to determine the route of rebellion that has the highest probability for success. Now, all the talking, all the planning, all the strategizing doesn't change the fact that it will be to no avail. If you want some illustrations of that, you can go towards the beginning of the Bible. We remember Elder Glenn preaching on Genesis 11 not too long ago and doing an excellent job expounding that text. And if you were to look at all the languages that are spoken in the world, it is a good witness to the fact that united rebellion ends in defeat. If you want another example, you can go towards the end of the Bible. And in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you could start there at chapter 19, though you can reference things before that as well. We read of, in Revelation 19, the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies being gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the returning king, and his army. See that in Revelation 19, verse 19. Then we see that the beast and the false prophet were captured. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Verse 20, And the rest were killed, per the depiction of the text, with the sword that proceeded from Christ's mouth. But there's another picture. You go into Revelation 20. And in Revelation 20, we read how Satan, after being released for a little while from his prison, to use language from the chapter, he will gather the nations, and they will be so many, they will be like the sand of the seashore, and they will gather against the Lord. They will surround the beloved city, and then fire will fall down from heaven and consume them. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you could remember sometimes early on in your Christian life or before being a Christian where you thought that history as we know it was going to climax with this this battle, a kind of like Narnia-like battle where both sides were going to be battling one another and then you knew in the end good was going to win and if you had a biblical worldview, you knew that Christ was going to overcome. But this isn't a battle. It's really just men showing up for judgment. That's the picture. Showing up thinking they could rebel against God, and it's so futile it's essentially just showing up for judgment. Now this is a good, a good thought for everyone of every age. There may be deception in numbers, but there is not strength in numbers when it comes to rebellion against God. Not to get too far away from the text, but sometimes it could be, it could be easier, right, to sin in groups. You know, you see other people sinning, then it's easier to do a certain thing. And deception can happen in greater measure sometimes in numbers, but rebelling against God in numbers is futile. Back to the text. The identification Lord here is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of the triune God. We see the word anointed here against the Lord and His anointed. That's the Hebrew word Mashiach. When brought over into the Greek, it's the word Christos. It means anointed one. Anointed one. David, for instance, was Yahweh's anointed. David was anointed three times, as a matter of fact, when you go through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 
Kings, when you look at the Old Testament, when they would take on the kingship, they were anointed. Oil would be poured on their heads. It was to represent the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So there was uh, an anointing that was associated with kings. But whatever application, again, this had in David's life, we know that this psalm well depicts the way in which concerted rebellion against God will play out in history as we know it. Revelation 20 is a good example of that. And this psalm also speaks to what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It had definitive application to Jesus with respect to Jesus and his crucifixion. In the fourth book of the chapter of in the fourth book of Acts, chapter four, verses twenty-four, the second half through twenty-eight, I want to read to you a portion of scripture. This is after Peter and John were used by God to heal a man that was lame from his mother's womb. This man is healed by the power of God. After that, they begin to preach in Jesus the resurrection. After that, they are arrested for preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They are put in custody until the next day. And when they are released, we are told in Acts chapter 4, they go back to their companions and in one accord, they begin to just pray and cry out to God. And this is what they say, picking up in the second half of Acts 4 verse 24. Lord, You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The death of Christ, the one who was anointed, when the Holy Spirit came down upon Him in the Jordan River. The death of Christ is a prophetic outworking of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's also the greatest example of how God can take what man means for evil and He could use it for good. Think about these men, these rulers. You have the religious powerhouse of the day, the the, the scribes and the, the, the Pharisees, and then you have the regional powers of the day. So you have Herod and Pontius Pilate, and they do their best. They take their best swing at the Lord Jesus Christ, and what do they do at the end? At the end, they are instruments whereby God accomplished the plan of redemption. It'd be like somebody on a soccer team doing everything that they can to kick in the winning goal. And then when it crosses the goal line, they come to find they kicked in the winning goal for the other team. Marvel at the sovereignty of God. That the sovereign God of the universe can superintend the sinful acts of men and women sinlessly and even mysteriously use those sinful acts to accomplish His purposes. As Derek Kidner noted, every grand alliance against heaven will show in time this double pattern. Well, I called our attention to the question, why? Why do the nations rage? we get a little bit of an insight to the rationale behind their rebellion in verse 3. We're told that they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the why. This is the why behind their rebellion. It's the pursuit of autonomy. 
They esteem the rule of Yahweh and His anointed as being restrictive and burdensome. As one commentator noted, this could be the language of the yoke and the plow. I think the language has broader application than that. They look at Yahweh's rule as drudgery, as a kind of unwanted slavery, and they seek to rebel against it. Again, whatever immediate application this had in, say, the life of David potentially, ultimately this would have application to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that it's always true and it's always the case that the pursuit of autonomy is lunacy. It's in submission to Yahweh and His Son that you find freedom. See, if you're a Christian, by the grace of God, you don't look at, to use language from 1 John, you don't look at the commandments of God as burdensome. And you know, even when they're, they feel binding, even when you feel restricted by the commands of God, when you're like, I want to do something, but I know God's Word is telling me I should not do that thing, you know you are bound with cords of love to use language from the prophet Hosea. So God is seeking to have His people hemmed in, if you will, by His Word for your good and for His glory. He wants to lead you in paths of righteousness for your good and for His name's sake. But those who are unregenerate, they look at the yoke of God as though it's burdensome and they want to throw it off. I don't want to do what He says. I don't want Him to be the ruler over my life. I want autonomy. And you want to have in your mind that the pursuit of autonomy to be your own ruler over your own life is lunacy. Because you won't even be free. You will think you're pursuing freedom, but the whole while you will be chained to your own sin. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. But he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That doesn't mean you won't battle against sin. That doesn't mean you're not going to war against sin. But that means that your identity has changed, to use language from Romans 6. You are no longer a slave to sin, a slave to your desires. You, by God's grace, have become a slave to another. And He is a benevolent one. And you become a slave of righteousness. And he's the one who said that his yoke is easy. Right? That's a picture of the yoke that was put upon the oxen, right? So the oxen, when they plowed the field, they could be directed well and they would stay the course. Well, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. These men. Make no mistake, I think the text is implying here for us to understand that they know who they're gathered against. You see the language here? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's as though they know who they are rebelling against, Yahweh and His anointed. We know Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the context here, you could see the depiction. But it's a good reminder from a New Testament perspective, that you cannot have allegiance to the Father without having allegiance to the Son. These men are like the rulers that Jesus spoke about in His parable in Luke 19.14. Those men who said, we will not have this man to reign over us. As Gerald Wilson noted concerning these men, their rallying cry is freedom. That's their rallying cry. But this isn't kind of, you know, the pursuit of freedom like William Wallace when he was pursuing freedom from King Edward I of England. Think of this. This is the pursuit of freedom from the benevolent and omnipotent God of the universe. What brazenness 
to think that they could throw off the yoke of God so easily. And what foolishness to throw away a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. One that was secured by the blood of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They see slavery to God, if you will, God's rule as a slavery that is to be thrown aside when in reality God's rule is the way to escape slavery to sin. I think Spurgeon put it well when he wrote, To a graceless neck the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? And just by way of application, a little bit more from this text, we see this kind of thing happening today. We see governmental leaders trying to remove the train tracks of God's divine order, whether that's with relation to biology or sexuality or economically, and what will ensue will be a societal train wreck. We see that happening in society as men and women try to rid themselves of even the slightest remnant or reminder of Christianity, endorsing evil as moral and good as immoral. But ultimately, as we see in this text, it will come to nothing. The rulers plot in vain. Well, that brings us to Yahweh's reaction. We see Yahweh's reaction in verses 4-6 through where we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. As one commentator noted, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. God looks at the way the nations and the rulers oppose Him, and what does He do? Well, for starters, we're told He who sits in the heavens doesn't leave His seat. (laughs) The nations may rage, But God is not moved. Such is the perfect poise of perfect and exalted sovereignty. Exalted, you get that from the in the heavens language. And by way of application for us, this is why, even though as hard as it may be sometimes when you see what goes on in the world, this is why you and I do not have to be dismayed. Because God is still seated on His throne. He's not fretting. He is still ruling. He is not usurped. He's not panicking. His plans will not be thwarted. Instead, we're told, instead of panicking, He laughs. Now to be clear, this is not a maniacal, evil, vindictive kind of laugh. Rather, this is, if you will, the laugh of absurdity. Right? This is like, seriously? Like, what do you guys think you're doing? It's that kind of laugh. It's meant to connote the absurdity of the feat that these individuals are proposing to undertake. We're told that in the text, the Lord scoffs at them. And the meaning there is that He will hold them as an object of ridicule. He, the Lord. In that context, Adonai, the Sovereign One, will hold them as an object of ridicule. But make no mistake, even though the rebellion is ridiculous... It's also evil. The Lord may display His patience and forbearance for a time, but He'll only allow the rebellion to go so far. That's connoted in verse 5 where we're told, Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. So in one sense, God laughs. He beholds the absurdity. And in another sense, the righteous anger that God has against such indignation and against such rebellion from the kings and their moral rebellion warrants 
a reaction from the Most High God. A thundering, if you will. A declaration. So he speaks to them. He declares in his anger. And just following the text of this poetic imagery that's described here, the utterance in response to man's rebellion is this, and we see it in verse 6. But as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So a few notes about the text here. First, at the beginning of the verse where it says, but as for me, very literally it could be read as, and I, or yet I, and it's emphatic in its nature. So it's as though God beholds what the kings are doing, they're doing this, and yet I, but as for me, this is my reaction. He's patient and he's tolerant, but he will only allow rebellion to go so far. Second thing I want you to note is the language of the word set. Set, within the context of this psalm, clearly has enthronement implications, right? But as for me, I have set, I've placed my king. He has been enthroned upon Mount Zion. Third thing to note, the holy hill of Zion. Although God was recognized, even in the Old Testament, to be the king over all the earth, you could look at Psalm 47, verses 7 and 8 as just one example. Nonetheless, in a very particular way, He chose that holy hill of Zion to be a place where the temple would be built and where He would manifest His glory and He'd rule and reign. The God who has heaven as His throne and earth as His footstool nonetheless chose to have that place to be a place from which He would reign. And the way it should have worked out was that He would reign through His anointed one. Now again, as you've got used to hearing me say here, whatever application this had, most immediately to say David, right? And God establishing His rule through David. And David did advance the kingdom. When you look at the boundaries that were conquered by the end of David's reign and into Solomon's reign, the kingdom advanced. God had set His king upon the holy hill of Zion, but it wasn't the perfect king. You just look at the Davidic dynasty and you look at the way in which things went you know, downhill, but then there might be a spike with, say, someone like Hezekiah, then things went downhill. Ultimately, this has reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, reference to the Davidic dynasty, reference to 2 Samuel 7, yes, but ultimately, application to the Lord Jesus Christ. The implication appears to be something like this. The nations are raging, but Yahweh's anointed is not moving. He's currently established in the heavenly Zion. He will soon be established on the earthly and in the earthly Zion. That brings us to the next section. We hear Yahweh's anointed speak. In verses 7 through 9 we read, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So here we see Yahweh's anointed speak. This is one of those occasions, I would argue, where David is speaking and writing, but nonetheless, the Lord Jesus in this context is speaking through him. David recalls the decree. I will surely tell of the decree. Now, a little bit of you know, interpretive uh, aside here. It's important to know, when you see that language, I will tell of the decree, and then what follows may be this. What follows may be a linguistic equivalent of the previous verse, meaning... When he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, 
could potentially be the equivalent of Yahweh setting His king upon His holy hill. There are possibilities of kingship overtones and being begotten. People get that, understandably, from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, when God speaks about being a father to the descendant of David, most immediately Solomon being in view. You could look at Psalm 89, verse 27, and the language of firstborn is used there. But clearly this has application to the Lord Jesus Christ because when you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse and says it's the Father speaking to the Son. And sometimes you get that in the Psalms. You get to hear, over here if you will, inter-Trinitarian communion. So it's the Father speaking to the Son. Now David may have been begotten in a kingly sense. Jesus is the begotten Son in the eternal sense. Now, although... Now hang with me here quick because I want to explain something. Although I would argue, because I think it's thoroughly biblical, that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. That He is, to use language from the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being or one in essence with the Father. When He was sent into the world, He was the only begotten of the Father that was sent into the world. You look through the New Testament and you see the language of fromness as it relates to the the relationship between the Father and the Son. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the Word of God. And even as a word proceeds from a speaker, Jesus is the Word of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And as I've noted to many before during, say, the Doctrine of God class, people sometimes, I would argue, have a wrong view of the Trinity. Think of the Trinity as something like this, like one person here, one person there, and one person there, when in reality it looks more like this. It's from the Father, from all of eternity, comes His eternally begotten Son, and then from the Father and the Son proceeds the Holy Spirit. There's language of fromness. Jesus, I would argue, is the eternally begotten Son of God. And I think there's so much text to witness to that. I just wouldn't feel necessarily comfortable with using this as a proof text for it. So so, some would. Some would say, well, I think this is talking about an eternal today. Today I have begotten you. I think it's much better to say this is speaking clearly with respect to the resurrection. Now you see the writer of Hebrews use this in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 to show how Jesus is greater than angels. You see the writer of Hebrews use this verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, to show how Jesus did not take on the priesthood of Himself. But the clearest application, I would argue, of Psalm 2, verse 7, is found in Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul there is preaching, and he says this in verses 32 and 33, "...and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children." In that, He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Kingship overtones. Jesus, having humbled Himself to the lowest place, was then exalted to the highest place at the right hand of the Father. And Paul is pointing to the resurrection of Christ, which is inextricably connected with His ascension to the right hand of the Father. 
And he's essentially saying that in the resurrection, Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is declared to be the firstborn from the dead in places like Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 or Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. But the resurrection and the subsequent ascension to the throne was the public declaration that Jesus entered into His kingship at the right hand of the Father. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth having been given to Him. So I would see Psalm 2-7 as clearly being applied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the kingship overtones that go with that. Yes, I know Jesus was always a king. You could look at Isaiah 6, compare it with John chapter 12, verse 41, seeing Him sit on the throne even before His incarnation. Even at His birth, we know that the wise men came to hail Him who was born King of the Jews. The angels declared to the shepherds that the one who was born in Bethlehem was Christ the Lord. But in a very real way, when He was raised up, seated at the right hand of God in His ascension, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, the resurrected God-man entered into His kingship and ruling. The decree continues with the Father saying to the Son, Ask of Me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I think there are multiple, multiple dynamics to this decree. Just picture Jesus at the right hand of the Father on the day of Pentecost, pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And ever since that moment, He has been gathering to Himself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, beginning with Jerusalem, out to Judea, and then Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. So His inheritance is being gathered in this moment. People from every tribe, kindred, and tongue are being gathered in. Even as the Father said, Ask of Me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. However... I think this has an ultimate fulfillment in the moment that appears to be depicted in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, where we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I think what's spoken of here is the time that Solomon wrote about in Psalm 72 where the ultimate king would rule from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth, that text finds its ultimate realization in the coming reign of the Lord Jesus Christ with His return. And the last portion of the text reads, You shall break them with a rod of iron. That word for rod could also be rendered as scepter. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. About a month and a half ago, sometime before I got sick and you didn't see me for a while, I had gone to the batting cages with Zach. And I recalled how heavy those metal Easton baseball bats are. You know those metal bats? They're very heavy. By the way, if you go to a batting cage, you might want to put a glove on because if you do actually make good contact, it hurts a lot. I wish I would have told Zach that before he went into the batting cage. And I tried it for myself and it did hurt a lot. But imagine if somebody gave you one of those metal Eastern baseball bats and put a vase in front of you. Now, I don't think you should go and break the vase, but let's say for some reason you were to break the vase. It would not be a hard task. You'd basically just have to pick up the bat and then you just drop it and the vase would break. 
That's kind of a contemporary analogy of what's being spoken of here. That rod of iron going and making contact with an earthenware vessel, a potter's vessel, would just destroy it easily. Again, it's connoting the futility of rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ. It's futile. That's the kind of power that he wields. Now again, I want to say, just as a quick aside, I think the power of God can be seen in so many ways when you go through the scriptures. You can see the power of God in his creative acts. Think about it. He takes dust, breathes into dust a breath of life, and it becomes a man. You think about it, he takes a rib from Adam's side and creates a woman. But you could also see the power of God demonstrated in his acts of judgment. And here's a picture of one of those occasions. Now, to be clear, all things are under Jesus' feet in this moment. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. He has been crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But yet there is coming a moment when Psalm 2, verse 9 would be realized. I say that in light of the way it's used in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, verse 15, speaking about Jesus' return, the text says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus is the male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation chapter 12, verse 15. And his people who overcome and keep his works to the end... Well, to them, Jesus said the following, To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. The language there connotes a participation, a sharing in the reigning of the Lord Jesus Christ that's promised to his people. It's amazing to think of being reconciled to God so that you become a son or daughter of God but also reconcile to God to have some measure of participation in the reigning of the Son of God? What grace. Well, as we close, I want you to look at verses 10 through 12, and we'll see how the psalmist applies the rest of this, uh, applies what's come before in the rest of this psalm. Verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may be soon kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So here's the application. The psalmist begins to bring it home. He says, now therefore. This was a stop and think about it moment for the kings and rulers. It's a stop and think about it moment for everyone in this room. So up until this point, you've seen the nations being enraged against the living God and it's happening now in the lives of individuals, but doubtless in governments as well. You've seen Yahweh's reaction to such rebellion. You've seen the son speaking through David, speaking about what God has promised to him, the father promising to the son. And now you get the application. And the application is this. Most immediately it goes to kings and judges of the earth, rulers with authority. God says, show discernment. The language here implies, be wise. The second part of the language here that says, take warning, essentially means receive correction. That's not just for kings and judges of the earth. That's for everybody in this room. Anyone who is outside of Christ, the scripture in this text is saying, be warned. Be instructed. Receive correction. You may not be a king. You may not be a ruler. You may not be a judge. You may not be conspiring with other world leaders. But if you are in rebellion against the Most High God, do you see that it's futile? 
And you have so much more motivation than is communicated in this psalm to bow the knee. In this psalm, you just see the power of God on display. He has set His Son upon His holy hill. He laughs at rebellion against Him. But in the Gospel, we know that it was the Son who bore the wrath of sinners like us so that we could come and be brought into the kingdom. Be wise and be instructed. Be moved by the power of God. Be moved by the grace of God and say, why would I rebel against this King? It's not just that He wields a rod of iron and one day will exercise it in in its totality when the nations are judged. But this one came under, if you will, the rod of God's wrath so that I would not have to come under the rod of judgment. Be wise. Be instructed. Receive correction. Turn around. If you're on a path of rebellion against God, turn around. Bow the knee. Well, what would that look like? Well, it would look like what it would look like for these kings. Serve the Lord or worship the Lord. The language there could be used either way. Worship the Lord or serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh with reverence or fear. You bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and you begin to serve Him. Self-service gives way to God's service. You evacuate yourself from the throne of your life. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is enthroned in the heavenly Zion, if you will, is then enthroned upon your heart, if you will, and you begin to serve Him with reverence and fear, realizing that He is the holy God of the universe. But you are also to, per the text here, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice! This God who is so holy and so lifted up and so powerful has come near to you in the Gospel and brought you near to Himself. He's inviting you. His hands are outstretched as is made very clear in the closing verse of this psalm. Do homage to the Son. Very literally in the Hebrew, kiss the Son. Now that language was used in the ancient Near East to connote paying homage. We see, for example, Samuel kiss Saul after anointing him with oil. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. But we also know that this sadly was how people paid homage to idols. The Lord said that He reserved 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed Him. The Lord through the prophet Isaiah spoke of the people in Israel who sinned more and more, saying to those who participated in idolatry, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Hosea 13, verse 1. So this is language, right? Kiss the Son or do homage to the Son. This is language of both political homage and religious affection. And if you were to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which you're doing both. You're saying, He's the Lord over all the earth. I bow the knee to His Lordship. But there's a sense of affection because you know that He died for your sins. And His rule is a gracious and benevolent rule. And He is patient and slow to anger. And yet He extends His hands to you. Those nailed, scarred hands. But it's also, by way of implication at least, an ultimatum. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. The one who could dash rebels with his iron rod is not to be trifled with. There is a righteousness that will be unleashed upon all those who have failed to kiss the Son. The word for angry that's used here, by the way, used 14 times in the Old Testament. Every time outside of this, it's used with respect to God. I think you have here one of the Old Testament witnesses to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's witnesses to the sonship of the Lord Jesus, that the Father had a son in places like Isaiah 9-6 or Proverbs chapter 30. But here I think you have a witness to His deity. And this is where I close. The very last verse says, How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. This is the conclusion of the psalm. This is the ultimate application that you might see how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. To be under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be one who is redeemed, is not to be a yoke that is despised, is to be esteemed as the highest privilege imaginable for human beings. And I want you to see that the way to avoid God's judgment is to take refuge in the Son. How do you avoid the judgment when His wrath is kindled in verse 12? You run to Him now. You take refuge in the Son. If you want to escape the Son's wrath, then you receive the Son's grace. Receive the King's terms of peace. And these are what they are in a nutshell. Acknowledge your guilt before the God of the universe. Turn away from your sin. Have a change of thinking as it relates to your sin. See it as heinous in the sight of God. See your own self-righteousness as being unable to secure your acquittal. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the grave. These are the terms of peace that the King offers. To escape the King's wrath, you must receive the King's Son. Confess with His mouth. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you avoid coming under the judgment of the King, even as you are at the same time welcomed into His family. Let's pray. Father, thank You for such a glorious psalm, Lord. Oh, Father, may You work in this place by Your Holy Spirit that there would be a great number of those who are in this place that could be identified those who have taken refuge in Your Son. So, Father, we thank You for the Son who is at Your right hand, for the One who has ascended on high. And, Father, I thank You for the way in which we could be instructed because we know it's not just the kings and rulers of the earth who have rebellious hearts, Lord, but You've subdued our rebellious hearts in the Gospel, but we know that we still have fallen frames. So, Father, may You find us by Your grace out of love and out of thankfulness submitting to those cords of love wherewith we are bound, Lord. I thank You that Your commands are not burdensome and Jesus' yoke is not heavy. So help us, Father, to find delight, even as the psalmist did, in Your instruction. Father, I pray for anyone who is in this place, Lord, who hasn't kissed the Son and done the homage spoken of in Psalm 2.12. May You work in them, Lord, helping them see through Psalm 2 that there is a coming climax of history. And that there is a coming judgment. And the way to escape the King's wrath is to receive His grace. Thank You, Father, for the grace displayed on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for all of us that there might be a sense of reverence and rejoicing that we have in light of looking at this psalm. Help us to serve You and worship You with awe. And help us to rejoice with a holy trembling that the holy God of the universe would bring us so near to Him. We thank You and we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.